All right, boys and girls, we are back with another edition of the Ben Dominich Podcast brought to you by Fox News. You can check out all of our podcasts at foxnewspodcast.com. I hope that you'll rate, review, and subscribe to this one and share it with a friend if you find it of interest. Today, I have an interview with Florida Senator Marco Rubio about his new book, Decades of Decadence, which looks at essentially the decline of America's elite class, a subject that I have obviously returned to multiple times on this program. Uh, Marco Rubio is obviously someone who has been at the center of a lot of different changes in America's political life over the past decade or so, and we talk about a number of those changes and what he's learned from that experience. Senator Marco Rubio, coming up next. Senator Rubio, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Hey, thank you for that. Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, I have read with interest uh, your new book, Decades of Decadence, How Our Spoiled Elites Blew America's Inheritance of Liberty, Security, and Prosperity. Um, Here's my big question for you. When it comes to America's elite, it clearly is an item of focus for a lot of different people, not just on the right, but on the left as well, of distrust for our elites for a lot of different reasons. But there doesn't seem to be a coherent solution. My own argument has been that we're always going to have a class of elites who are in significant roles of leadership in business and politics and culture, et cetera. But I, I don't know myself what the solution is when it comes to demanding more of them, right. demanding a better elite. How do we get a better elite in America? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things to unpack there. I think by elite, what we're saying is, are people are there always going to be people that run corporations or are in the highest levels of government or, you know, leaders in their industry or what have you? Of course. And to that extent, they're always going to be elite. I think the fundamental problem in public policy, right, which is the focus I have on um, public policy, the fundamental argument I have, by the way, you just threw me off because you lifted that for a second. It looked like a Bud Light can. I'm like, is this, is he trolling me or? No, I'm not, I'm not I, you. I, I got this you. National Journalism Center. Oh, I know. No I just saw. I just. I just saw blue and white, and it's like. <laughs> said, oh, they're playing games with me today. All right, so. <laughs> no, um, sir, absolutely. <laughs> this is a Modelo-only household. <laughs> I hear you. Isn't that something we got? We got to turn to Mexico for our beer. So. Uh, so anyway, going back to the point that I was making on public policy. So really, the problem becomes when two things happen, and they're interrelated. The first is that the people that are in charge of things are completely out of touch with everybody else, like their lives, their challenges, what they're facing. It's like, everything's going great. I don't know what you guys are talking about. That's challenge number one. And then challenge number two is when their interests are in, dir- in direct conflict with the interests of everybody else. And I think both of those have played out. The first one has always been the case, maybe not as big, right? I mean, the CEO of a corporation 50 years ago lived a different life than the line worker, but not as different. And, and I think part of that has to do with the way our economy has changed. When we were a country that made things, and that's the core of our economy, there was a lot more synergy there. Now we're basically an economy built on finance and services. And so when you're just moving people's money around, you know, it's not the same. You're not managing uh, employees in the same way, what have you. So, so that's the first. And then on the public policy front. And the pu- public policy front, in some ways, is at the core of what I argue. And, and I say this as someone who has kind of worked through it because I am a – I was – politically raised, obviously in the 80s under Reagan, but that was actually different post-Cold War, right? I'm in college in 1991, the Berlin Wall falls, and what everybody's telling us from you know all of the journals and the center right beyond is the history is over. And everyone's going to be a democracy. Everyone's going to be a free enterprise economy. 
And from now on, nationhood is not going to matter as much because what's going to link us and interconnect us as humans is that we're all consumers and we're all investors and we're going to make to be making too much money off each other to go to war and things of that nature. So that was the gist of the, the argument. And so that's created a set of public policies that have really worked well for people that are in that realm and, and that are in that world where they move money around the world, where they that benefit from globalization, that benefit from borderless and uh, world. But it's hurt millions and millions of people who are left behind and were told, don't worry, yes, your job is going away, but a better job is going to come and that better job is going to pay more and that better job never materialized. And now that has not just economic impacts, right, but it destroys communities and all of the institutions that support it. You can't have little leagues, you can't have PTAs, you can't have churches and civic organizations. You can't have, I mean, how many hollowed out communities... Uh, do we, we, you can come up with a list of 15 or 20 Flint, Michigan. These are these were prosperous places 25 years ago that have been hollowed out and everything that comes with it. So I think that's really the disconnect and the biggest. And, and to me, how I learned that lesson most powerfully. Right. I'm not calling anybody evil here. I'm grateful for their help. But I would go out and do town halls in New Hampshire and then I would do a fundraiser in Boston or New York. And it's two different planets. It's like their priorities were different. And so I realized that even within the Republican Party, there was a voter base of people that were that felt increasingly left behind. And then the donor base that basically felt like, stop talking about social and cultural issues and let's focus on cutting taxes and regulations and helping what we have now grow even faster. So what we have to do about it is recognize that that's the problem we have. And that's a tough thing to do because we are increasingly isolated from it. You can live your entire existence in a bubble of people that all agree with you that Kids should be taught about gender when they're seven years old in school. And anybody who doesn't believe that, for example, is a knuckle dragger and backwards. That, that's how you can live your whole life in these bubbles. Washington, in some ways, is that kind of bubble. Certainly, some of the other areas are. And it, so it increasingly isolates us from each other. And all it does is feed us um, you know, things that confirm our biases already. So it, recognizing that problem is step number one. If we don't recognize that, we can't come up with solutions. You know, uh, that second group that you were talking about, you know, the donor class or certainly, you know, our economic elite. The thing that I kept hearing from them, uh, you know, really starting, I would say, 10 or 15 years ago when these issues started to percolate up, they hadn't really had a political effect yet, uh, was something along the lines of what are people complaining about? TVs are cheaper than ever. Yeah. You know, it was it was sort of a, a like, you know, you – we have made this global, you know, capitalist utopia – uh, you know, we've realized it. Uh, so why are people upset? You know, what, what is wrong, you know, when they understand, when they are complaining about, you know, sort of not having any meaning out of the, the you know, career or the life that they have. And to me, that's something that is just so at odds with our understanding of, of human nature. It may make sense in, in some kind of bottom line uh, way, uh, but it does really speak to, I think, the absence of an understanding that when you when you lost the the companies, the factories, and the communities that were built around them, that you were losing something more uh, than uh, more important, uh, if, you know, to those people's lives uh, than could be categorized or could be filled with just cheaper goods from overseas. Yeah. So part of it starts with the idea that somehow America is an economy. America is a nation. And it's a nation that's mm -hmm. built on communities. It's building blocks or communities and families. We have an economy. It's a part of who we are. It's an important part of who we are. But it's a part. It's not the part of what we are. It's not the entirety. But if you think we're an economy, then you basically think what people are is they're either investors or consumers or both. 
so the way to make people happy is bigger return on their investments, you know, and have the stock market go gangbusters. Who cares how it's going gangbusters and um, make things cheaper so they can buy more things. And what we're learning is that neither one of those two things, you know, the whole notion about money can't buy you happiness per se. Money can buy a lot of things and it's certainly a part of happiness. You need a certain amount to be able to buy, but it, but alone cannot get you fulfillment and meaning in life. So we are, as humans, one of the first, I don't care where you drop human beings, in a prison yard or in a college campus, they're going to want to belong. Immediately, people are like, where do I belong? What group do I belong to? What, what can I be a part of? We are social creatures that want to belong to things. When you don't have jobs, there's nothing for people to belong to. You know, fam, family breaks down, community breaks down, communities are hollowed out, and people now have to find their meaning in other things like hyper-partisanship, hyper-politics, tribalism your gender, skin color. We make up identities just to be able to matter and belong to something, even if the people we're joining up with are half a world away or half a country away, and we only know them from the Facebook profile or Twitter profile or, I guess these days, TikTok profile. So, you know, if you talk about that in that way, you start to realize that much of the ideology that has governed our politics for 30 years completely ignores what we know to be true about human nature. And as long as we're doing that, we're going to be making bad public policy. Just a cul-de-sac, since you mentioned it, um, there is a, uh, there's been a couple of pieces now, and there was a long piece the other day about um, the way that TikTok has survived the uh, challenges that have been raised toward it, uh, both by you and by uh, many of your colleagues. Um, there's this feeling on Capitol Hill that essentially TikTok's lobbying effort, especially among progressives, was very effective in uh, shutting off the possibility that there would be a bipartisan push to either ban it or force it to uh, be divested away from uh, the uh, the Chinese Communist Party. Do you accept that frame of what's happened? Is there hope to ban TikTok, just given that none of the security concerns that have been raised by you or other colleagues, from my perspective, have been addressed at all in terms of, of any kind of solution that would prevent it from being the kind of um, – uh, you know, a terrible force that it is in terms of both propaganda and tracking American individuals. Well, look, I don't think that TikTok has survived anything. I think what they've survived is that Congress doesn't move quickly on anything, right, to begin with. And so this is no less the case. I also think it what it has been able to do uh, is find voices within the political class that are arguing on their behalf for a lot of different reasons. It's also a tough issue. Look, it's hard to go to people and say there's something you really like and it's a lot of fun. I know you enjoyed using it and we're going to take it away from you. And you just have to trust this. It's really bad for the country. So you've got to make a compelling argument about as to why. And it requires a little bit of being able to see into the future. It's not so much what TikTok is doing now is how the algorithm that's controlled out of China and always will be by Chinese law. That algorithm can never leave China, no matter who owns TikTok. It doesn't work without that algorithm. And ByteDance will always own it. It's explaining to people how that can be used against us. But it's tough because people like it. And, and I guess the the sort of simpler analogy to it would be, you know, telling people, I know you really like that, those cheap clothes that you're getting $13 on Sheen or whatever online. We're going to take it away from you. They're like, well, why can't we just, I, I'm, I don't like China. I'm afraid of China, but I do still want to buy the $12 shirts that cost 50 somewhere else. It's hard to take that away from people. So I think that they, what, what has happened basically is that Congress just takes a long time and it just takes a handful of people to slow things down. I'm just, I'm just curious, have you had any of that TikTok propaganda advertising fed to you? Because I get a ton of it. 
Well, I'm not, I'm not on TikTok, but do I see it? No, yeah, no, no, not on TikTok. I mean, I mean the advertising that they're running on YouTube TV, that they're running on Hulu. I've seen, seen it. I don't know if I've seen it anywhere there, but I've seen. Look, here's what I have seen. Okay, you have major. <laughs> Uh, it's it's like, very it, blatant. It's well, like it's like we're patriotic. Like it's, oh yeah. It's, well, it's I've seen I think like on the nose like stuff. But I think that uh, what I've seen, you know, part of the challenge we have is you know, you've got major like punch bowl or whatever political. All these other, they advertise with TikTok or TikTok advertises with them. So you see the coverage. The Washington Post coverage on this has been particularly startling. Forbes has been very good on it. On the contrary, part of it. So you start to see some of that being compromised. These guys have money and they're spending that money both in shaping the media narrative. You also have this sort of group of people that are in the com commentary class who are like um, against anything anybody in politics is for, no matter what side of the equation they're coming from. And then you have the third challenge, which is, I think that's on us. And that is, we just have not done a good enough job yet of trying to explain to people what the challenge is in the long term. But There's look, ad go ahead. No, go ahead. No, no, there's, there's an ad that they're that I'm thinking of specifically where it's like it's an aged veteran who has something go viral on TikTok so that he can buy scooters for other aged veterans. Right. Like that's the TikTok ad, you know, and it's it's basically just this sort of um, uh, it's red, white, and blue. It's emblazoned with this very blatant propagandistic message. And if you aren't paying attention to the debate in Washington, you would probably be asking why are they running this ad. But if you see it, it's it's this just uh, you know, total propaganda, uh, you know, we're pro-America, we're pro-veteran, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. And well, it's, and it's, look, that's one of the challenges. Look, I'm in favor, of obviously, of freedom and, and, and our system of government and openness of our system. But it is a vulnerability because when the Chinese decide, and they have, that this isn't going to happen, they don't have a town hall meeting, they don't have a consultation, they just do it. Right. And, and they have the ability to move very quickly. So you can't have TikTok in China. They have their own version of TikTok and it operates very differently than ours. And it's a challenge that we continue to face. Like authoritarian regimes can move very quickly and impose solutions on populations. Sometimes that's not a great thing. Most of the time it's not a great thing, but it does give them an advantage in situations like this where they can protect themselves from dangers while exposing the rest of the world to them. We, on the other hand, have to have a debate and an argument. But let's be clear about something right now. The Biden administration has the authority, properly crafted now, to put tremendous restrictions on TikTok and not outright ban them. They've just chosen not to do so because there are voices within the administration that don't want to do so for political reasons. I think that's one of them. They're being told, look, that this is going to be a huge tool for us that we're going to use in the election. Republicans aren't on TikTok. We are on TikTok. This is how we're engaging with Generation Z. And and that's how we're, how we're going to get these people out to vote for us. So we're unilateral disarmament and part because there are people that don't want to continue to antagonize china they still believe even jake sullivan who i think probably leans on the hawkish side of the biden administration on china in his speeches talks about we're, we're not we're st we're interested in you know cooperation and win-win which is hard to do with a country that openly talks about being the grave diggers of, of capitalism I mean, if someone's talking about digging your grave i don't know what you're going to cooperate with them on so <laughs> You know, that, that's a reality that they've created, not that we create it. So I, I do think that some of that is holding back the Biden administration. I'd like Congress to do something on it. You know, I think it's important that we act on it. But, you know, this is small ball compared to the bigger challenges that we face. Not that TikTok's not important, but if we can't do this, you know, taking on this challenge, well, that's, reorienting that's, our that's, economy is, is much that's bigger. That's the thing that's so concerning about me. I mean, about this for me is right. that, you know, you have an issue where there is, uh, at least on its surface, 
uh, unanimity, uh, rare bipartisan agreement. You know, China is a challenge. It's a problem. They're doing a lot of bad things. We need to be prepared for that. You know, Pelosi going to Taiwan, you know, that kind of thing. Rare bipartisan agreement. But then it, it's like, okay, well, well, what does that mean? What, you know, what tangibly are you going to be able to do because of this rare bipartisan agreement? And this answer to this point seems to be virtually nothing. Yeah. And look, I've been calling for this since 2019, right? So I was three years ahead of everybody on it. We had done it back yeah. then. It would have been easier because it was near, not nearly as prolific. It was just starting to grow and present itself. But we could see even clearly then how it was being used and the vulnerability it poses moving forward. So, you know, there's a lot of arguments to unpack about TikTok. You know, at the end, of it, people say, well, they all do that. Well, yes, they all do it. But the difference is I'm not a fan. You know, I have my own issues with Instagram, with whatever. But they're not the differences. They, they don't operate under the Chinese national security law that basically says whatever you have, you must give us if we have a sport. And whatever, if we ask you to do something, you have to do it whether you want to or not. And, and so I think that that's the part that we have to do a better job of explaining to people. Our hope now, frankly, is that as technology advances and moves, something will replace TikTok that's better, uh, but that, that it doesn't have the same vulnerabilities. But in the meantime, I mean, they're gathering extraordinary amounts of data on our society. Uh, think about this. We had a bunch of small business people, right, come to Washington and say, you're going to put us out of business if you take away TikTok. And I'm thinking to myself, this is the leverage the Chinese have on us. They can destroy, if, if, if us denying you TikTok would destroy your business, the Chinese government denying you TikTok or denying you, know, you access to, could destroy your business. So if that's what we're facing now on a bill. Imagine on the verge, on the eve of an invasion of Taiwan, if they basically weaponized that against us. And basically we had a bunch of small business people, you know, many more than are on there now, banging on the door of their elected leaders saying, do not defend Taiwan because if you do, China will cut us off from TikTok and we will yep. not be able to sell our products. I yep. mean, just think about the amount of leverage. We, no nation in the history of our country, probably since 1812, I guess that war, ha, has no other foreign power has had that kind of leverage on our society. And, and it's one we've given them. Are you concerned, um, that, you know, there's been so much of a, a conversational connection being drawn between uh, the experience in Ukraine, uh, and concerns about Taiwan. Obviously, when it comes to sort of the, the impact on America and the globe, you know, Taiwan cannot be underestimated in terms of the the level of, of impact it would have in terms of trading routes, in terms of, you know, uh, the, the economic uh, domino effect that would come. Uh, are you concerned that the case is not being made right now to American voters? That if we want to avoid something like what's happened in Ukraine happening in Taiwan, that we need to be spending more money and spending more money in, in smart ways uh, to bolster it, to be more of a, a militarily uh, solid uh, force, a, a, you know, spikes on the porcupine, et cetera, um, in order to prevent the kind of war that all the experts see coming. Yeah, the only way to prevent, in my view, something happening in Taiwan before the end of this decade, which I, which I think we're going to face some uh, fork in the road there before the end of this decade. The only way to extend that to hopefully some other future time, you know, where maybe the dynamics would be different is that China has believes that any conflict over Taiwan is one that they could potentially lose or get dragged down into a boondoggle. And so I do think that that is the reality and, and one that we have to make. I, I think that what I thought you were going to get at, and I think you were somewhat is, 
when Americans turn to us and say, okay, but explain to me again why my son or daughter is going to be killed defending Taiwan. I get it. It's bad, China. And I don't think we've done enough of that because it's not just Taiwan. It's not that this island off the coast of China that China wants to take over. It's what two things. The first is if they control it, then all the territory, the airspace and the territorial waters they will claim will basically make us a continental power. We'll be driven out of Asia completely as a regard. The second, so that's the first, and the impact that would have on trade, they would now control you know, 70, 60, 70% of global commerce. Just you'd have to pay a toll if they wanted one just to go uh, to get it to market because of where production still is, even the production that moves out of China. So that's number one. But the second is it would reorient the world. If you're South Korea, if you're Japan, if you're Europe, if you're anybody on the planet, you would say, this is the first time in my lifetime where a foreign country did whatever they wanted, America couldn't stop them. So the world has changed. I now know who the most powerful country in the world is, and it's not America. And therefore, we're going to have to start making decisions, economic and otherwise, on the basis of what the most China wants, not necessarily what America wants. And, and I think that would be, no, none of us have ever lived in a world like that. None of us have ever lived in a world in which America was not the most powerful country. And we have benefited from that in real ways. So, so let me ask you a question about that, because I, I, you and so many others who are, you know, in your generation of politicians have had to sort of navigate a, a difficult series of, of challenges when it comes to foreign policy, namely that you and, and no one really at your, at your age range or below was actually a decision maker when the neoconservative foreign policy uh, group was in charge. Like you were, you were the people who were under them and under them and under them by a number of different levels. You know, trying to make that policy work, et cetera. You were not a decision maker at that point. Um, and so, when I hear a lot of people getting slammed with uh, the neocon label right now in 2023, I'm I'm like. What are you talking about? They, they didn't have any power to change American foreign policy, you know, at that time. Uh, and yet there's also this kind of conflict over what America first foreign policy actually means. And you can get a different definition depending on who you ask. If you ask Bill Haggerty, it's going to be a different definition than you ask, you know, uh, people who are more closely aligned with uh, President, uh, former President Trump. If you ask, you know, uh, uh, you know, sort of paleocons, they'll describe anybody to their, to, uh, uh, you know, in a distance from them uh, as being uh, neocon as, as just kind of a slight. How do you define the foreign policy of a responsible pro-America Republican coalition going forward, yeah. not looking at the mistakes of the past, but going forward in a way that makes clear the importance of, of issues like Taiwan? Well, I think the first thing is to understand that, you know, the era you're describing was a unipolar era, right? America was the only country in the world capable of projecting power. And so it, it sort of felt like we had the opportunity to do that, we would. I think Afghanistan is somewhat something that people to the stake, it's hard to dispute. I mean, Al-Qaeda was hiding out there. They planned 9-11 from there. We had to go after them. Iraq is actually more controversial, and then limited engagements in different parts of the world. Today, I mean, America's in, there's no mood in America on either party to engage at that level anywhere else in the world at this point, because the world has changed. And that's the important thing. The world today doesn't look like it did 25 or 30 years ago. So a responsible foreign policy is one that now understands where we are headed. And where we are headed is a world that's going to be broken up into three camps. You can see the outlines of it already. There will be a China-led order of people who think that the world needs to be remade and pull away from this Western-led, American-led global order to some alternative, maybe even replacement for it. China, you could start to see Russia, uh, Iran, obviously, uh, joining something like that, and, and other countries that see benefit from it. There's the second group of people that we share a lot of values with. That includes Japan, South Korea, Australia, New Zealand, and most of the countries of Europe. 
And then a third group of like developing countries. And in that I would put, including NATO members like Turkey, but certainly Brazil and others who are, and, and, and even smaller countries, particularly in the Western hemisphere and in Africa that are all saying, I'm going to try to get what I can from both sides. Like I'm going to hedge my bets on both sides and try to see what benefits I can get from both. Typically it goes something like this. We want billions of dollars from China to build ports and roads and stuff, even if they own it, but we want to buy American military equipment cheap because it's better than the Chinese equipment. So it's, it's that sort of combination. That's the world we're now in. So we are now in a world that we have to operate very differently. We are looking for alliances and allies and some not in the traditional sense. A lot of these countries are not going to be able to just be as open and outward, even though they're concerned about China. They're small economies. They can't just cut off the Chinese or no longer speak to them. But we want to make sure they don't that they are aligned with us on the idea that we don't want China to dominate the world or dominate their region. And for each country, I mean, it, it isn't like recreating a global NATO where everyone is aligned to sort of join each other militarily if there's an invasion. It'll mean different things in different regions and in different parts of the world. And that concerns me because if you look at the Western Hemisphere, just four years ago, the overwhelming majority of countries were aligned with us on Venezuela and Iran or what have you. Today, it's the complete opposite. It has completely flipped just in the last four years for a variety of reasons. We need to be in the friend building business. And with each country, that relationship is going to look very different. But we don't have a foreign policy apparatus that's built that way. Our foreign policy apparatus is we'll go into your country, we'll send an ambassador you don't like, We'll fly the gay pride flag all the month of June over the next to the Vatican, and we'll and then we'll impose sanctions on you because some you know mid-level diplomat decides that you're a human rights violator. We have countries in the world that have military units sanctioned because it's Unit 105, and Unit 105 40 years ago committed atrocities. All the people that were part of that unit back then are either dead or 80, and but <laughs> what we still can't sell weapons to Unit 105 because of those sanctions under Leahy. So we've got to re under the Leahy Amendment. So we've got to re-imagine uh, our foreign policy. We are in an, an addition mode right now, not subtraction. We need to be adding allies so we can actually stand up to real threats. In decades of decadence, you uh, write about uh, the dangers of the multinational firms that are weighing into politics in an increasingly aggressive way. Uh, you write about you know this particularly in the wake of the Dobbs decision and focus on the abortion side of things. Uh, I wonder what your attitude is toward that. You know, I mean, you came up through a a brand of conservatism coming out of the Reagan era, as you said before, um, that was essentially you know pro capitalism but also pro business, and basically said, you know, assumed that businesses would be uh, prioritizing you know consumers of all political stripes. Now they are taking firm stands often in some ways, you know, uh, just for the papers or, or for the for the news media, uh, but saying, you know, we, we don't want to be active in certain states because of their policies, you know, uh, you know, virtue signaling in different ways, uh, weighing in on policies in ways that obviously have created uh, tension between those business communities and a lot of conservative politicians. What's your take on the proper approach to things like that, um, it, you know, from a policymaker perspective. It's one thing to just sort of say, hey, people can, you know, boycott whoever they want or, you know, buy or not buy whatever product they want. But from a policymaker's perspective, how do you approach it? Well, a couple of things. First of all, just we have to know just because a company has an address in the United States of America does not mean that they are an American company, even though they're protected by our laws. They are operating in the what they believe to be either the best interest of their company or the demands of their institutional shareholders and their executives. So in the case of institutional shareholders, who are they? Well, there are people from all over the world, 
But there are also these large firms uh, who basically go in and say, we don't care if Target's losing a bunch of money. We want you to do this because we own 40, 50 percent of the shares and we vote those shares. Even though we're not individual owners, we, the investment firm, control your company. And you've seen that with BlackRock and Vanguard and so forth that control huge chunks of, of the shares in these companies. And then who populates the work? Well, so we've had a higher education system that for 25 or 30 years has been pumping uh, has been indoctrinating in every field, particularly in the liberal arts and in the business schools, the notions that America's terrible, America's evil, our society's broken. You know, the, the job of life is to be activists on all these issues. And then these people graduate and they go into the workplace. That, that's who's populating the boardrooms and all. So it's not surprising what happened with Bud Light. We joked about that a moment ago, but this is someone, a product of our university system. They put them in charge of marketing. They came up with an idea that I'm sure would have been very, very popular on whatever campus this woman graduated from but uh, but you know ran into the reality that there's a huge swaths of america that think it's nuts and almost has done tremendous damage to that corporate brand likewise with target you know i don't look i don't care if men want to go and shop in the women's section of target what business is that of mine i you know i have i view it and i say wow that's interesting but i mean that's free country but now but but it's a free country brother yeah but but let me ask people this how would they feel if target set up a lingerie section of you know sexy lingerie for nine-year-olds and eight-year-olds i would be equally outraged and that's the problem we're having now that's people are going to react to that they're going to react to that by saying well what's wrong are you guys crazy who thought of this and it Mm -hmm. probably wasn't the manager of that store it was somebody far away that is a product of this system that's completely out of touch with, with other people and, and just want to ram this agenda down everyone's throat. But they live in these little bubbles where everybody agrees with them. And so, um, and, and they don't, and anyone who disagrees with them has to be some sort of sexist, homophobe, racist, racist, xenophobe, and so forth. And, and so I think that's a big problem. But how do I approach these companies is this way. Our job in policymaking is to act in the best interest of the United States of America. Okay. And so generally that's going to mean the free market because the free market's always going to meet the most efficient outcome. But when the most efficient outcome happens to be bad for America, we've got to act, we've got to decide what's good for America. So the free market is right. It is more efficient. It is cheaper to make medicine in China than it is to make it in America. It is a lot cheaper. But is it in our national interest to depend on China? I think the answer is no. We are facing today one of the most critical shortages, one of the most dangerous pharmaceutical shortages in American history, not on Tylenol, on chemotherapy medications, for example. It's actually being rationed in some parts of the country. And so is my job to act in the interest of the pharmaceutical company or in the interest of a country that's lost the capacity to make its own medicine and is left dependent on a hostile foreign power? So I think those are going to be conflicts. I think the thing that's annoying about these companies is a company that does business all over the world in places that have atrocious human rights and don't say a word about that but they'll boycott a state that pa- yep. like Georgia that passes an election law where democratically elected members of, of their legislature passed a law um, that frankly didn't do what they claimed it did. Um, they're going to boycott the state, but they won't say a word. But these are some of the same companies, by the way, that were lobbying against the Uyghur Human Rights Act because they wanted to continue to use Muslim slave labor in Xinjiang to cheaply produce their products so they can sell them here and around the world. That hypocrisy has to be called out. And, and I think to me that 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 is not anti-capitalist, but our job is I, the market exists to serve the country, not the country to serve the market. Well, and, and also, I mean, just on a basic level, and I'll ask a, a last question in just a second here. But on a basic level, it seems to me you are an American company. You enjoy a lot of benefits from being an American company. You also, in many ways, 
nearly all of the companies have the power to do so, try to tilt the playing field in their direction. But we don't have to have a tilted playing field in your direction. <laughs> we we can take that away. We can decide that, you know, you aren't an American. You don't want to act like an American company anymore. Well, we don't have to give you these gifts. You yeah. know, we don't have to give you sort of the advantages of a, of a system that you've tilted through lobbying and through and through uh, regulation in your direction. That can be taken away. And then you just have to survive as any other company because you've decided you're not an American company anymore. I, I don't get why – there's some kind of ideological conflict there uh, in terms of the way that people have thought about things. But I just think that there's so many uh, politicians across the country who have just thought Republican means business means good. Yeah. You know, well, and I think that's right. I mean, so I, at some point, some CEO, like I read the other day, a couple of Jamie Dimon and, and Elon Musk went to China and they're talking about how, you know, we really shouldn't cut off China, re-engage with them. Well, I get it. They make Tesla batteries in China and I mean, they have a lot of finance invested they're probably saying what's good for their company, but I, as a policymaker, can't just listen to that and say, well, if they say it, then it must be true because they've made a bunch of money. Exactly. Uh, so that's the first. <laughs> and the other thing that I do think that's annoying as a conservative, and that's the one of the things that we've started pointing to, is these guys will beat the crap out of us on all the cultural things, right? They'll join up every effort, but then when they're going to get unionized or some regulation, so they want us to be with them to protect that bottom line, but then they'll beat the crap out of us on all this other stuff that has to do with the culture. But again, my job is not to destroy American corporations. That's not what I'm focused on. Our job is to create the rules, right? And then yeah. companies will apply. It's just like the National Football League. They decided they wanted more scoring and they wanted more points. So you can't touch the quarterback. You can't bump receivers. Um, you know, they've done all this and they're getting more points out of it, right? That They, they wrote the yeah. rules. The team's adjusted. We need to write yeah. the rules to be pro-America. And, and these guys are going to make money and they'll adjust. But in the end, we can't put the interest of the business class over the interest of the country because without the country that, and, and that's the last point I would make about this. A lot of the people that run these companies consider themselves to be citizens of the world, right? They, they, yes. and they don't necessarily, I mean, they'll say they're pro American, but to them, America is just one of multiple markets and it happens to be where they live. And I think that's a problem. They have every right to feel that way, but we can't guide our foreign policy on the beliefs of people that view themselves as citizens of the world, because at the end of the day, nationhood matters because it matters to Russia and it matters to China. It better matter to us. All right. So I have one final question. I know that you haven't made uh, your, your thoughts necessarily, uh, you know, uh, all that, all that front and center when it comes to 2024. But, but here's my question. We have uh, two uh, current residents of your fine sunshine filled state, uh, running to uh, uh, for the 2024 Republican nomination. My question is, uh, between Ronnie and Donnie, which is more of a Florida man? <laughs> well, I, I, anybody can be a Florida man. That's the great thing about Florida. Everybody's from <laughs> no, somewhere else. No, no, else. you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, no, I think, I think everyone, I, I think the great thing about Florida is you can move here from anywhere in the country and be a Florida man pretty quickly, a Florida woman, whatever. <laughs> but, you know, one thing I'll say about the presidential race, it's important. Look, I ran for president. It's an important thing. I'm not saying it's irrelevant or we shouldn't pay attention to it. But I do think we have to be very careful, those of us like myself on the center right, that we don't allow the presidential race to consume us and distract us from the important work that needs to be done. I'm hoping the next president of the United States is going to be a Republican. It'll be one of the people that are running now and that we have worked on a plan that we are developing public policies that they can take up and, 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 and make happen. You know, Ronald Reagan won, and, but Ronald Reagan really was the culmination of a movement. Right. It was a movement that began with Goldwater and had been built up over 20 years. And when he got there, he had guys like Jack Kemp who were in place in Congress ready to pass the tax cuts and some of the economic policies he had. 
because that movement had been built. And so we have to ensure that even as we have this race going on and making that decision, we recognize we can't let that become a distraction away from the other important stuff that needs to be done. We're going to have a nominee and the voters of Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina and other places are going to be very good about choosing that. And uh, and I'm not saying that I won't at some point endorse somebody or think about it. We'll see it. But I, we can't let that become a distraction from the other work that still needs to be done. We can't be the but, but come on jet ski riding with a crocodile on your lap, you know? Yeah. Come, come oh, I don't. I can't see. No, no, I can't see either one of them doing that kind of thing. You know what I mean? But, uh, but um, you know, I, I, uh, I, I always tell people, you say, say Florida, man. But at the end of the day, I mean, we most of these people are from somewhere else. Like you, someone else made them weird, and then they came here, you know, and we welcome them because they can. They here, they have the freedom to do that stuff, and. And um, I think the big difference is that we have a whole year to do this stuff. If you live in another part of the country, you're probably locked in three or four months because you can't go outdoors. In Florida, you can do wild stuff year round, you know, because you can be outdoors almost any time of the year. So I just think we have more chances to do that kind of thing. Gotcha. Gotcha. More more opportunities. to Exactly. 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 (laughs) All right. Senator Rubio, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Thank you. Thanks, man. More of the Ben Dominish podcast right after this. So I don't often promote to you all uh, the work that I do on my Substack, the Transom, uh, which you can find at thetransom.com. You can uh, go there and subscribe, uh, both for free and uh, there's a paid subscription as well. Uh, but I wanted to just let you all know that we have a book club that is restarted now uh, as part of this Substack. It's something that is designed to be a way for a lot of our different uh, readers and listeners to gather together and discuss books of interest. Uh, And uh, it's something that I've used to delve into a lot of different areas of American life and literature. Uh, Particularly, we have spent a lot of time on uh, sort of modern media criticism, books by David Mamet, uh, looking at Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death and the like. Our latest book, one that uh, I think would be of interest to probably a lot of you, is Empires of the Sea by a British historian, Roger Crowley, who is looking back uh, at particularly the kind of 50-year period in the middle of the 16th century when you saw so many different uh, significant battles take place in the sea of the Mediterranean. Uh, It's one of these moments in history in which you had so many different significant historical factions clash uh, in ways that are of particular interest. And so you go from the Siege of Malta to the Battle of Lepanto, and you learn all these different things that kind of flow out of that into the world that we know today. This is an underappreciated aspect and period of world history and one that I think is particularly worth uh, studying. Uh, and uh, Roger Crowley's book is one of the best in terms of, of summarizing uh, and getting to the core of the historical elements that were going on there uh, in a way that isn't just, you know, sort of uh, dry academic work, but is very gripping and interesting. If you're interested in participating in the book club, you can you join it, uh, as I said, by signing up for the transom. Uh, we have our uh, regular Zoom that people participate in uh, once a month, and we'll be doing uh, another, uh, another book next week, uh, next month. If you have, uh, don't have the time to do it this month, uh, but I hope that you'll consider joining up because we really do have a great time discussing some of these works and especially, uh, post pandemic. I feel like it's important to get back, uh, to the idea of discussing, uh, different books together, having folks gather together to discuss these types of things. Uh, too much of our lives, I think is lived 
uh, separate nowadays, and it's it's good to be able to come together uh, and have a conversation about things that are of interest and of great importance. I'm Ben Dominich. You've been listening to another edition of the Ben Dominich Podcast. We'll be back soon with more to dive back into the fray. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app.